0: In my library, there is a book titled, How to Read the Boring Parts of the Bible. And believe it or not, the author of that book is actually not intending any sort of irreverence toward the Scriptures. He is, however, recognizing that there are various genres or kinds of literature or writings to be found within the library that the Bible is. And they can be very different from one another. And you read them differently. There are stories and parables, which are not the same thing. There are poems and songs and proverbs and history and gospel. But there are also things like genealogies, records of who begat whom. There are long descriptions of how certain things were constructed like the tabernacle or the temple. There are uh, collections of laws that are very detailed and which sometimes pertain to the minutest of circumstances. There are descriptions of various rituals and ceremonies that were to be performed by the priests in the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. So there are a number of different types of writing in the Bible. and. And absolutely, all of the various styles of literature found in Scripture are important. All of them are inspired by God. And so, as Timothy says, they are, by virtue of that fact, they are profitable for teaching and correction, for training and for uh, training in righteousness. But while they are equally inspired, all of these writings, they are not all equally inspiring as you read them or interesting just in terms of sheer impact. You know, in our own day, the, uh, the modern novel, for example, is typically a very readable kind of literature, depending on the author. But, you know, instruction manuals for how to put together swing sets and uh, phone books maybe not so gripping as uh, other things that you might read. Um, well, arguably, the passage before us this morning would fall into this sort of other sort of category, at least most of it does. And um, it's, it's one of those portions of the Bible that is perhaps a little more difficult to get excited about, but one that nevertheless is part of what God has given to us, and so therefore merits our taking a moment to at least look at it together. Now, in our last look at Romans, as we've kind of worked our way through over this uh, Over a year now, maybe 18 months. Uh, In our last look, we studied chapter 15, verses 14 to 33, and finished that out. And we saw there how Paul, uh, as he's kind of wrapping up this letter, he's had a few things to say about his pastoral perspective, about his pastoral practice. And then we've also looked at his example of this sort of pioneering persistence that he has in, in just continuing on to plant new churches in new places throughout his ministry. Further, we saw that uh, as Paul is tying up some loose ends and specifically how he finally, uh, in that last chapter 15, provided an answer to this nagging question of why it's taken so long for him to finally get to Rome. That's what we looked at last time, and with those kind of things out of the way, Paul then turns in chapter 16 to really the final matters, to some what you could call some housekeeping matters, uh, again, wrapping some things up. Specifically, chapter 16 can be divided, I think, into five sections. There's an opening word of commendation to a woman named Phoebe. There then are a number of greetings from Paul to uh, a number of uh, specific believers, Christians, in Rome. There is then a final uh, little section that's a word of warning or caution. There are, are then greetings from those who were with Paul, his companions, to the Roman Christians, and there's a closing word of praise or worship, which we commonly call a doxology. This morning, we're going to look at three of those sections, the first three very briefly, and then try to finish up next week, Lord willing. With that as an introduction, let's pray together before we listen to the passage itself. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, please help us now as we look at this, um, even this portion of your word together. Help us to find good things that will reveal who you are and what you are doing in this world. Help us to see helpful truths that will encourage and instruct and challenge and motivate us as your people. And to the degree that we grasp what you have for us and to the degree that we commit ourselves to the embracing and embodiment of these truths, to that same degree, would you be honored and praised? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, there are, I believe, five identifiable sections in this final chapter. The first one is comprised of verses 1 to 2 and has to do with a woman named Phoebe. Listen to what Paul says about her. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at King Cray, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. and." Help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, outside of what Paul says right here about Phoebe, uh, we don't know anything about her. She is up to this point a stranger to us in Scripture. And yet even with this very scant bit of information about her, there are some things that we can now gather Firstly, and it's, it's only a supposition, but I think it's a strong one. It's shared by a number of scholars who feel fairly certain that Phoebe was Paul's courier. Uh, she is the person that physically carried Paul's letter to the Romans from the city of Corinth, from which he probably wrote it, to the Christians in Rome. She carried the letter there for him. Now this supposition is based on a few things, like, for example, the fact that Paul sets her apart At the beginning of this section, from every other person to whom he sends a salutation. He doesn't just greet Phoebe, he commends her. He commends her to them. Now, you know, commending someone is the sort of thing that you do when you want another person to regard that someone with the same sort of favor that you regard them. When you want them to share your high opinion of them. That's what Paul does here with Phoebe. He commends her. And then beyond, the sheer fact of Phoebe's commendation is the substance of it. What he actually says about her is it's significant, two things mainly. Firstly, he says that she is a servant of the church in Corinth, which is a small city about six and a half miles outside of Corinth. Now Bible commentators have discussed this passage ad nauseum, trying to decide what Paul means by this reference, servant of the church in Kincrae. The Greek word in question here is diaconos, which can be and is translated often as deacon. It's also sometimes translated as servant, as the ESV does here. Even if you do translate it as deacon, that doesn't necessarily tell us anything for certain about it. As Stott says, one commentator says this, he says, Phoebe is certainly called a deacon or diaconos here. The question is whether this is an official position or a general description. You know, is this a person who holds a diaconal office at the church in King Cray? Or is it simply someone who's serving the church in a particular ministry, not as an officer or official, but as a willing helper? The truth is, it's difficult to decide which view Paul has in mind here. The text doesn't give us any absolutely definitive clues, one way or the other. And to either your great delight or your great consternation, we certainly aren't going to settle this question today. But you should know that it is an important question. And it's one um, that is being discussed within our own denomination here, the PCA, because it has a bearing on how we view and practice diaconal ministries in all of our churches, including in this church. (laughs) The current position of the PCA is that Phoebe was not an official deacon or deaconess, even though she was a much-to-be-honored servant of the church. But there are some strong... Godly voices on both sides of this question, in both sides of the debate. People like Tim Keller, Ligan Duncan are on different sides of this issue. And so you should be praying for wisdom as this discussion proceeds within our denomination. And in particular, you should be praying for people on both sides of the matter to be willing and prepared always to believe and practice what the Bible says, not what we wish it said. We need to pray for a unity of mind on these matters, which means for some people, they'll need to be prepared to let go of long-cherished views. And for other people, they'll need to be prepared to embrace brand new ones, depending on where they fall. However, regardless of which way you go on this question and without having any sort of settled answer here this morning, which what is still, I think, very clear from this passage is the high, high regard That Paul has for Phoebe and her ministry. And he wants others to take note and honor the service, her service to the church as well. So the first word Paul uses to describe Phoebe is servant or possibly deacon. And then Paul uses another word to commend Phoebe. He calls her a patron, which is a word that typically refers to someone who's provided personal (coughs) and financial support of a particular endeavor. In this case, Phoebe's financially supported Paul in his ministry and a number of other people as well. And so, Paul commends Phoebe to the Romans. And as we think about what Paul says about her here, uh, what we can piece together, a picture begins to form of a woman of apparently considerable means financially, possibly a widow, a woman who has distinguished herself by her service to the church and by her generosity toward various gospel workers. Further, as some scholars feel, she was a woman who was likely about to make a trip to Rome herself on personal business. Of some sort, and so Paul, seeing the opportunity, asked this woman who has already helped out in many ways to provide the additional help of serving as a courier and delivering his letter to the Romans. Accordingly, and to help her out with that task, he appends a few words of commendation in the closing section of the letter, wanting to make sure that the Romans uh, believers honor her that they respect her, that they take good care of her. He gives specific instructions about that while she's amongst them. So so there you have it. Phoebe is a courier, a servant, and a patron. Well, after commending Phoebe, his courier, to the Roman church, Paul then launches into a fairly lengthy list of people to whom he extends his personal greetings. I want to take you through the list. We're not going to discuss everybody in this list, so you can breathe a sigh of relief there, but I do want to read it to you. I want you to hear these things. Greet Prista and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved statues. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Traphina and Traphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrikus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister in Olympus, and all the saints who are with him. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Probably not on anybody's memory verse list, but important. Nonetheless. Now, if you're like most people, when you get to a list like this, uh, you might be tempted to just skip right over. Or if you don't skip right over it, you feel guilty about that. You kind of go into some kind of autopilot mode where you just mouth the words, but you don't really think a great deal about what you're reading. I get that. I get that. I'm tempted to do the same sort of thing myself sometimes in different parts of the Bible. However, if you can stop yourself from sort of phasing out. There are some interesting, helpful things to be seen in this particular list. We're not going to look at all of them. But I just want to, for example, isolate a couple of names that can be fruitful to think about. <clears throat> Notice the first two names on the list. Prisca and Aquila. Most commentators agree that this is the same Priscilla and Aquila that we read about in other places. Paul simply using a shortened form of Priscilla's name. And if that's right, then it's helpful to recall what's said about these two Another part of the Bible in Acts chapter 18. it reads, After this, Paul left Athens, went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, or Paul was of the same trade, he stayed with him and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And skipping down, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. A little further down, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So the Prista and Aquila here in Romans is most likely this wonderful couple that Paul first came across when he was church planting in Corinth. He met them because they had a shared common occupation. They were they were both tent makers, which Paul used to supplement his income, but which he was also clearly an avenue for his ministry as he shared the gospel with his fellow workers. And now Paul is sending greetings to this same couple, not in Corinth, however. They're back in Rome. A fact which is important because it helps us to answer a a logical question. And it's this. How is it that Paul knew so many people? This is a long list. How did he know so many people in the Roman church even though he had not planted that church and he had never been there when we read Acts 18 and put that together with Romans 16 we get a clue as to how it might have happened as Stott points out Acts 18 tells us that the Roman Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome we know from other extra biblical sources that was at 49 AD that was when Priscilla and Acula left Italy and came to Corinth where they met Paul But Claudius died five years later, at which point the expulsion was revoked, allowing Jews to return to Rome. And so Priscilla and Aquila apparently returned. And we can assume a number of other Jews returned as well. Meanwhile, as all this was going on, Paul's been ministering and preaching the gospel in various places. And it's not then difficult to imagine that in his travels he met some of these other expelled Jews who also responded to the gospel, like Priscilla and Aquila, who then also returned to the city after the expulsion order was lifted. And so it was that Paul now knew and knows a handful of people in the Roman church who were once away, but now have come back after the expulsion's end. It's a bit of detective work looking at lists list like this and comparing to other passages and pulling these things together, but it's helpful. It helps us to answer some sensible and important questions about Paul's history. And so just by focusing on a couple names here, that's just two names on the list. But focusing on a couple names, there's some important things we can see by looking not only uh, looking at those things. But, but then looking past that, looking not only at the individual names, uh, but stepping back and thinking about the list as a whole. The message of the list as a whole. There's some other things uh, that we can learn some very important truths. For one thing, there's a wide variety of people to be found on this list. Uh, Bible scholars who are geniuses at this sort of thing tell us with some certainty, because of the names that are used, that there are both Jewish, Jewish and Gentile names here. Or Greek and Roman names. There are, as we've seen already, men's and women's names here. There are names that are typically found among those who are slaves. There are names that are likely reflective of people who are in some position of power or authority. In short, there's a mix here. And it tells us something about the reach of the gospel in Rome. That it was being embraced by all kinds of people in all kinds of circumstances. Another thing worth noting, and this is picking up on some things that were at least hinted at already in the discussion of Phoebe. But there are 26 named persons on this list. Nine of those mentioned... are are women. That's a little over one-third of the list. Why is that important? It's important because Paul is writing these things in an extremely male-dominated context and culture. And as such, it's worth taking note of both the respectful manner and the high frequency with which Paul talks about women in his letters, including here. People, especially people today who are opponents of Christianity in general, and of Paul in particular, will often, and and exhibiting their phenomenal ignorance, accuse Paul of being a misogynist when in fact nothing could be further from the truth. Paul's practices and attitudes, just here as a case in point, as he showed himself repeatedly, uh, he's a way ahead of the curve on these things. If anything, Paul would have been regarded as a cultural liberal by most of his peers back in the day. So in our contemporary discussions about men and women and roles and relationships in the church, which we need to have and are not easy to have, but let's not complicate those discussions or complicate that matter by making patently untrue assertions about Christian doctrine in general or about Paul in particular. Still another thing that this list shows us is the fact that there are at least three, possibly more, house churches in Rome. Verses 3 to 4, as we have already seen, Paul greets Priscilla and Quilla. And then in verse 5 he says, greet also the church in their house. Similarly, verses 14 and 15 seem to be referring to identifiable groups of believers that most likely would be meeting in the houses of the persons mentioned there. The point is, the church in Rome was clearly a collection of smaller house churches. Whether these smaller churches had a formal connection, we can't say for sure, but it seems likely. Regardless, Paul seems to be aware of these house churches, and he makes a point of singling them out in his greeting list and greeting them all. And the fact is, in Paul's day, house churches were absolute, an absolute necessity because there, there were no uh, public spaces to be used for churches, and the cost and the difficulty of building them would have been prohibitive. Interestingly enough, in certain parts of the world today, like China, for instance, where public spaces for Christians are similarly difficult, if not impossible, to come by, an almost identical strategy of planting house churches has taken root and is actually one of the key factors behind the explosive spread and growth of the gospel in that country. And, and believe me, it is an explosive growth. The official numbers about the size of the church in China are seriously downplayed. The numbers on the ground from the people that are actually there doing the ministry are far, far higher in the hundreds of millions in that country. A fourth thing I would draw your attention to is the simple fact that the most common thing that Paul praises about the people that he greets in this list is their service. Because being a servant is an honorable thing. It's an honorable thing. Those are just a few things we can see when we take a look at this list as a whole. They provide us with some insights into what was going on in Paul's day, as well as suggesting certain trajectories for the church in our own day. Trajectories, for example, that push us to work hard, uh, to widen the, the breadth and the depth of our gospel work, to include all kinds of people. Trajectories that encourage us to imitate Paul in his Really, actually cutting-edge recognition and encouragement of the numerous women whom he regarded as partners in the work of the kingdom, but without sacrificing truth. And finally, trajectories that suggest ways for the church to survive and even thrive when she finds herself in a culturally and politically embattled context, like China. Well, at the end of Paul's detailed greeting list, He issues a kind of general instruction and command for the Roman Christians to greet one another with a holy kiss, which was both a call to, at the same time an expression of their unity and solidarity as believers. And then, uh, rather suddenly, Paul seems to shift gears as he launches into a section where he warns and cautions the Romans about some things, causing some scholars to wonder about what's going on here. However, if you are familiar with Paul's writing, then it's not unusual to see him do this sort of thing. You would have seen him do this kind of thing before, change direction very rapidly. He's just been addressing the church, including the various house churches in Rome, and he's just instructed them on on greeting one another and how they ought to greet and welcome one another. And in the light of that sort of thing, and thinking about the unity of the church, to go from addressing a unified church to issuing warnings, but how to respond to those who might divide the church, it's not all that surprising of a move, actually, for Paul to make in my judgment. And so Pro- Paul writes this. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattering, they deceive the hearts of the naïve. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. As we look at this warning that Paul issues here, it seems that what Paul is concerned about are false teachers. People who come in and they wreak havoc on a young church by their teaching. And the specific feature uh, of their teaching that's mentioned here is that it is contrary to, it is the opposite of what other true teachers like Paul would have given them. Now, Paul is no stranger, sadly, to this situation. He's come across this many times with previous churches. People would come into a church situation, typically after Paul had established it and then moved on to another place. They would come in after him. And they would begin to teach things that were contrary to what Paul had said. Um, In the Galatian churches, as Josh noted last week, false teachers had come in after Paul. And where Paul had taught them that it was Christ alone that saved them and made them right with God, these false teachers came in and taught that it was Christ plus other things that made them right with God. And the thing about the gospel is this. Any attempt at modifying the gospel destroys the gospel. Any attempt. It never needs updating. It never needs version 1.1 or 1.12. Version 1.0 is all there is. Any attempt to modify it destroys it. What the false teachers in Galatia were doing wasn't just adding a little something to it, they weren't just amplifying it a little bit, turning up the volume, so to speak. They were completely undermining it and they were gutting it of any value whatsoever. So, and quite sadly, Paul has seen this sort of thing before. He's seen the confusion and the division and the hardship and the wreckage that gets left behind in the wake of these individuals and their so-called ministries. And whether this sort of thing was already taking place in Rome or whether it was something Paul feared, we can't say for sure. But Paul's instruction as to what they should do about these things It's very clear. When you see this sort of person, says Paul, avoid them. He says, walk away. He says, leave. Cut off ties with them, have nothing to do with them. This is not a Romans 14 situation. We've looked at that before. This isn't about Christians disagreeing over non-essential, disputable matters. In those situations... Paul wants them to love and accept one another. This is different. This is life and death. This is war. There is a time and a place, says Paul, for cutting ties and walking away. When you've got a person who is opposing sound doctrine, who is contradicting what Paul has said, it is time to sever the relationship. Now, that seems hard, and it may sound harsh. But Paul knows what he is talking about. He's seen the damage too many times. And letting that sort of thing go, looking the other way, trying to dialogue your way out of it, all the while letting persons like that remain in positions of influence, it's like letting a person, that, that, knowing that you've got a person in your midst who's got Ebola, and you just kind of let them walk around anyway and you don't do anything about it. This sort of thing continues to happen today. And it happens more easily now than ever before, I think, in the history of the church. Thanks to social media, you know, everybody can have a pulpit. Everybody has a blog or a podcast or a video or a Facebook page or Instagram, whatever, you know. And false teachers abound. And the Christians who see it for what it is and respond to it like Paul commands are often the ones who get criticized for not being loving or for being harsh or judgmental. And just this week, just this last week, I read about another one of these situations where a prominent voice in the sort of hipster evangelical world has uh, outed himself, outed himself, theologically speaking, with his very own statements. And he's been called out for it by some with the predictable result that the people who are pointing out that the emperor has no clothes are the ones getting taken to task rather than the one who should be taken to task. People are falling all over themselves to give them a big warm bear hug and that's the last thing they should be doing. Paul says avoid them. So this sort of thing still goes on all the time At Paul's instruction, when you see this sort of person in operation... And it's clear, avoid them. Because while they might appear to be serving Christ, they aren't. They might be using the language of the kingdom, but they are not building it. They are actually tearing it down. And with smooth speech and clever language and excellent speaking abilities, they are taking in young, new, naive believers who do not yet have the discernment that they should and who need to learn to be wise or perhaps wiser about what is good and and more innocent with regard to what is he for. And then Paul says something fascinating right at the very end of this warning. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In other words, as one commentator writes, in the immediate term, what does Paul mean by that? In the immediate term, probably means this, if the Roman believers watch out for and keep away from those who cause division, then God will crush Satan under their feet, meaning God will use them to frustrate Satan's designs to divide and destroy the church. But there is an even deeper meaning here, which if you'd skipped over this less than fascinating section of the Bible, you would have walked right past, which would have been tragic because it's one of the most encouraging Bible connections uh, in, in all of Scripture. Now, all the way back in Genesis 3, right at the beginning, after the fall of humankind and as a consequence of their sin, God pronounces curses upon the man and the woman. But first, before he gives them the bad news of what their sin has wrought, he issues a curse on the serpent, who is Satan. And he says, in essence, that Satan will wound the offspring of the woman, but that same offspring will destroy the serpent, or Satan, or Satan. Crush it. Genesis 3, verse 15. That curse, as it turns out, is a promise and a prophecy and a word of hope. It's good news that speaks of the eventual crushing of Satan's head by the offspring, the coming seed of the woman who is Christ and who will utterly defeat Satan's efforts by his life and his death and his resurrection. And that is the beautiful truth that Paul's words in Romans 16. He calls for his readers. He wants them to see their obedience and their faithfulness, including the faithfulness of how they respond to enemies of the truth. He wants them to see all of that as part of a much bigger picture. He wants them to see it as both the outworking and at the same time a foreshadowing of the crushing victory of Christ that was secured and settled and accomplished and inaugurated at the cross. And which will finally and be fully be realized and consummated when Christ returns, and Satan, at that point, is finally and forever cast down. Paul, with those spare words in Romans 16, is giving them this grand vision of what's really going on in the scheme of things. And he's once again grounding day-to-day realities, day-to-day obediences, in sweeping, encouraging theological certainties, and he's giving them hope by means of that. There's a little bit more to come in this chapter. We'll stop there. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us and for us, for all the parts of it, even the parts that we are inclined to race right through. Um, We thank you for the fact that even and especially in those places, you have said some of your most encouraging things. And it is certainly a huge encouragement to know that Paul could look back over the centuries and he could say to the Romans that their obedience and response was actually a fulfillment and outworking of things that had happened way, way back at the very beginning in creation. It was an outworking of promises made, of curses issued that really were a fulfillment and a hope. Which showed God's determination to reconcile and redeem a people for Himself. Thank You, Father, for for that picture, for that connection, for that truth. Help us then to see, um, in the same way that Paul saw, to see our lives as an outworking on the same kind of level, the same sorts of trajectories. That that it is, that we are not just living our lives here on our own doing our own thing, that we are actually part of a drama that is bigger than all of us and is, it is your purpose and plan that's working out and we are integrally involved and are part of those things. It's hard to see it and remember it sometimes, Father, in the midst of all the, um, just the day-to-day and the things that drag us down and distract us. And, uh, so, Father, lift our heads Uh, Help us to look around and see regularly, consistently, daily, what you are doing and see your purposes worked out and and see how our lives actually fit into that. Uh, Encourage us by that, draw us forward by that, make us useful servants in that same uh, plan and purpose. and uh, May we uh, one day uh, as Paul looked at these various people and encouraged by their service to the kingdom, to the church, uh, might that be a, a, a worthy goal for each one of us here, to be regarded as a servant who, who worked hard in the Lord, who was motivated by the truth of the gospel, and uh, your great mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name, for his sake, amen.